excited, that would be awesome, which would be cool. Hey, I wanna um, just introduce a small idea before I get into my message, because along the way today, uh, I want you to remind me that you're alive, that you're listening, that you're here on purpose, you're not just here to fill a seat, but you're here to, you're here to hear from God, all right? Here to hear. Um, and so, uh, I just wanna say this. I wanna ask that every time I say this phrase, how good, right? Every time I say, how good, this whole middle section, you have to respond with, so good, all right? And then immediately after, everyone else has to say, very good, all right? We'll give it a test, are you ready? How good? So good, very good. Oh man, how good? All right, that is enough of that. We'll have some fun along the way. I'm sharing a message today that's a bit different from one I've ever shared. I'm super excited about it and I can't wait. I wanna start by chucking a question out to you. How many people here, give me a show of hands, has someone in their world that they would identify as an exaggerator? Yeah, I mean, someone who takes things, what? I heard my name. Hey, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> someone who takes things way over the top. Without a doubt, I am one of those people. But we're... Don't, don't agree with that. We've all got people like that in our world, don't we? We've got the people that say when they come back home from fishing, like I called a fish, and it was this big, like whatever, right? Like you're dreaming. We've got the people, you know, like typically like our dads or our grandparents, they'd give, get their good whinge on. They're like, boy, when I was young, I had to walk to school 40 miles up a hill barefoot in the snow at 5 a.m. after milking 200 cows. And we're like, whatever, you're dreaming. The story just seems to get longer and longer every time. It's funny because when people exaggerate a story, sometimes we would consider it a character flaw. Like, why are you lying? Like, why are you chucking all this stuff? And we consider it a character flaw. But as I've been churning over this idea of exaggeration, I've realized that for the most part, people exaggerate for a very specific reason. They don't want you to focus on the details of what they're saying, but they want you to grasp the magnitude of what they're trying to get across. It's like accurately describing it doesn't actually accurately depict what is going on. Now, I do this with Darcy all the time. I have a very exaggerating wife. I tell you this right now. But she also has a very exaggerating husband, right? <laughs> Admittedly, all the time, I'll be like, hurry up, Darcy. You take like four hours to leave the house, right? Which is almost true, but not quite. The reality is she doesn't take four hours to leave the house. She takes about, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, but it just doesn't have the same effect for me to say, you take 40 minutes to leave the house. She'd be like, yes, I do, right? <laughs> the details aren't, aren't important. What I actually want her to hear me say is, Darcy, you take too long, just too long in general, like just way too long, speed it up. The reason I magnify the time, it's in the hopes that she would reflect on the time that she takes. If I'm driving along and someone comes hooning past me way too fast, I might say, they came screaming past at 100 miles an hour. Now they didn't, because that's really fast, and no one can really convert miles into kilometers, and it's, it's way too hard, but it's, that's super fast. But usually, they wouldn't have, right? Now, it just doesn't have the same effect for me to go, well, I was driving along at 99 you know, kilometers an hour, because I'm a good Christian, and this guy came racing past, must have been about 120, 122. Like, you might conclude, oh yeah, like, so they were going a bit fast. And I'm like, no, I want you to know how I felt in the situation. I want you to understand that as I was driving along, there was a surprise, there was a shock factor. I was taken back by the excessive speed of the person coming past me. Now, it's not that I'm trying to lie to you, but I want you to get an accurate picture of what I'm trying to explain. You know, I'll often say this when I go to McDonald's, you know the little apple pies, they're real good, eh? But I'll say like, the contents are like a million degrees Celsius. 
they are a million degrees Celsius. Those things are ridiculous. Those are like lava pies. I don't know if you've ever had one of those in the last few years. I'm warning you. I love you enough to warn you. Don't do it. It's, it's hectic. Honestly, you burn your tongue. You can't taste anything for the next few weeks. Those things are crazy. Always borrowing the pie. Safer communities together. But you, you don't have enough breath to blow the heat off that pie. Like, we're moving on. Do you get frustrated when someone exaggerates a story, when you're around someone that's always exaggerating? If you do, I wanna suggest that maybe this doesn't apply every time. I wanna suggest that maybe it's because you're focusing on the wrong thing. Maybe it's because you're focused on the details, whereas the author or the writer or the one sharing the story is focused on the lesson. Jesus did this all the time. In Matthew 10, 25, he said, did you know that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to go to heaven? Now, those who heard that in that time would have gone, ah, Jesus, you're a joker. What a joker. Joker Jesus at it again. Here he that's a good one, Jesus. Like, oh, I've, heard, I've heard good stuff, but that, that, that chimes it. That's a good one. So you're basically saying like, it's impossible because a camel cannot go through the eye of a needle, and so you're saying that rich people were destined for hell. Now, of course, Jesus goes on to explain. Jesus goes on to clarify this. He says, no, 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 I'm not talking about actual camels and rich people. I'm exaggerating here so that you understand that there's some things in this world that you can try and try and try, but even in your own strength, it will always seem impossible. But with God, all things are possible, which is the verse he goes on to say. He's basically saying, look, don't look at the specifics. Understand the lesson here. This was a very common way for Jesus to teach in his parables. And because Jesus is God and, and Jesus was a perfect reflection of the Father, we can understand that this way of teaching was very in line with God's heart. And so with that in mind, I want us to do something a little bit different tonight and I want us to d dive really deep into the book of Jonah, like the whole thing. The entire book from beginning to end, don't stress, it's four chapters, all right? Like, that's the sort of book that you read and you feel real good about yourself. You're like, I read a whole book of the Bible today, like, just saying, do the same one tomorrow. But I've been doing a little bit of study uh, over the last few weeks, and God's really spoken to me and shown me some really, really cool things. And I would love to, we're going to quickly go through the whole story of Jonah in just a moment. And then after that, we're going to dive deeper into some of the elements of it. And my prayer is that it would, it would challenge you and encourage you in the same way that I have. Is that good? How good? All right, here we go. So this is the story of Jonah. God tells Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh and preach a message and tell them that destruction is coming their way because their wickedness has been highlighted to me. Jonah's like, yeah, nah, God, how about I don't? And we just say that I did, right? So rather than going east on the map to Nineveh where God has called him to go, he runs down to a port, hops on a boat and goes all the way to a place called Tarshish. Everyone play, say Tarshish. It's hard to say, right? Have grace for me later on. Called Tarshish. This is the westernmost port of the known world in that day. So Jonah's basically trying to get as far away as possible from where God is calling him to go. So they're on the boat and God brings a huge storm and the sailors run down, they wake Jonah up. They're like, what's going on? Do you know why the storm has happened? And so they all get up and they all start praying to their individual gods. They roll dice to decide whose fault it was. It seems legit. They decide that based on the dice, it's the casting lots, it's Jonah's fault and they're not very happy. Now Jonah knows that he hasn't been a good boy and he wants to get out of this situation. 
He tells the sailors to chuck him overboard. They're like, if you just chuck me overboard, uh, when I hit the water, the, the storm will calm down because it's all my fault. Seems to me like a really extreme way of getting out of your problems. They chuck him over and the storm actually calms down, but Jonah is swallowed by a huge fish. How good? He's in there three days, three days until the fish vomits him up onto dry land again. And I can just imagine God in this moment having a laugh, like, this is awesome. Like, you thought you were gonna bow out that easy? Jonah, bro, I'm the giver and taker of life. Now you're just back in the same spot covered in fish vomit. How embarrassing, right? And so there he is back on dry land again. God gives him the same call. Go to Nineveh and give them the message. So this time Jonah actually listens, but he's not too pumped on it. Jonah turns up, he preaches a message which basically says in 40 days you're gonna be destroyed, but in Hebrew it's just five words, just a five-word sermon and it's really effective. Not only do people turn from their wicked ways, but even the king and the cows repent. You heard that. I don't even know how a cow repents, but <laughs> even the king and the cows repent, like that's a good sermon. God forgives the people of Nineveh, but Jonah gets really angry at this. He's like, are you kidding me? I always knew, God, that you were gonna do this. Why did you bring me all of this way, take me through all of that to get here just so that you could find some way of being gracious? God, I just knew you were gonna do that. Jonah is so angry at God that he wants to die, which I personally find quite funny, even though it's a bit of a morbid thought, but I understand being sad enough to die, but he's so angry, he just doesn't wanna even exist and just handle it anymore. And at the end of the book, there's this funny situation where Jonah's in the sun, a plant grows over him to give him shade, then a worm comes and kills the plant, and then he's back in the sun, and he's so angry and wants to die again, right? That is the book of Jonah. How good? You guys are alive. So I've given you the run over, so now when we talk about stuff, you kind of get the gist of what's going on. Is that cool? Now, there's two main theories on what sort of story the author of Jonah is trying to tell, and it's really important that we take note of the kind of story, the kind of literature, so that we know what to expect to get out of it, right? Now, the first theory is that the author has received a historical tradition about this guy named Jonah, and he's passing it on as a historical account about what happened in the life of Jonah and this mini revival that takes place in Nineveh. The other view is that there's a lot more to the story than first meets the eye and that Jonah is more of a narrative parable. Like, you know, like Jesus told parables, like for the point of teaching, that Jonah is still a real life historical figure, but that the author doesn't intend on us taking it as a historical account, but rather as a parable. And I think whatever way you find yourself leaning, like did he really get swallowed by a whale, like by a big fish. Did that really happen? Can he even survive? Like firstly, if you're questioning the miracle, that doesn't make sense because if it's supernatural, it's supernatural. If God can do one miracle, he can do all miracles. But anyway, whatever way you're leaning, I think the most important thing here is that we humble ourselves before the word of God. Right, we don't come to the story and tell the story what it ought to be. Well, this is what I'm already thinking. This is already my view. This is what I believe about this. So this story better come in alignment with me. But rather, we need to be humble before the Word of God, not tell it what it ought to be, but allow the author to tell us what story he's trying to tell. Now, both viewpoints hold that Jonah is a real-life historical figure. Now, even Jesus in the New Testament mentioned Jonah, which a lot of people will believe is affirmation of the histor historical accuracy. Like, if Jesus was gonna mention it, it must be legit, right? If he's gonna mention it, it must be affirming it. But while that may be true, this is really interesting. If you go and you read the verses where Jesus is referring to Jonah, he's not doing it in a way where he's appealing to the historical accuracy. He's not doing it in a way that he's appealing to the genre and the style of the book, the fact that it's a 
excuse me, a prophetic book. He's not doing that. But what Jesus is doing is what he always does with Old Testament stories. He says, what you see here is you see people and you see imagery and you see stories that are all pointing towards me. This is what Jesus does with Old Testament stories. He says that Jonah in the belly of the whale for three days is a type. It's a symbol of the death and, res- death and burial that he would eventually face. Now, here's what's interesting. No matter what view you hold, Jonah is very unique in the way that the story is told. It doesn't have many dates or names. It mentions Jonah, and it mentions Nineveh and Tarshish. That's it. It doesn't even mention the name of the king of Nineveh, which was one of the biggest, baddest empires that the world had ever seen. It leaves out all of these details, which leads me to think that perhaps the details weren't so important in the story. Perhaps it was more about the lesson. You know, this storytelling, the storytelling style of of Jonah is, is satire. And I'm not sure if you're familiar uh, with, this, with this style, but it's where you take known figures that are somewhat typical and you place them inside extremely ridiculous stories to highlight just how ridiculous and outrageous these people are, right? And so we, we watch the story or we read the story. This is the, the concept of satire. We read it and we think, this is so ridiculous. Like, I can't believe what's happening in front of me. But the point, what the author is trying to do is critique you, the reader, while you laugh at yourself, Right, so you, you look at it and you're like, that's, that's so me, that's ridiculous. Like, oh my gosh, that's so me. Like, that's the point of satire. And for you young people, you may see a lot of this appear in the way of a good meme, a good meme online. Now, Steve, you love a good meme. You love a good meme, right? So the thing with a meme is like, it's a, a photo with some text on it. That's all I can explain if you don't know what it is. Like, it's a photo with some text on it, but it's like, ha, ha, ha so funny, right? <laughs> that's it, eh? Like, sometimes you're laughing all sorts of good laughter by yourself at a good meme. Anyway, you would read it, you would look at it, you would laugh and go, that is just so true, but it's just so me. I've got one example to show you just so that you know what I'm talking about. All right, Jen, you can check that up on the screen. So, I mean, this is just a silly one that I found, but it's the sort of, you're like, this guy, that's me, like I do that. Like, and maybe you don't relate to that one, but that's the idea. That is satire, and okay, we can take that away because otherwise that's gonna be real distracting. That guy's a hero in the meme world, just so you know. <laughs> the entire book of Jonah is just like this. The way that the author has written it, the language used, the themes, the magnitude, highlights that this is the way he's written it. Because this is, this is what we see, right? You've got Jonah, who is the man of God. Like he is a prophet of God and yet he's actually the most hard-hearted and hateful man in the whole story. Like God has to literally take him on this journey, have him vomited out by a fish where he reluctantly goes and shares a five-word sermon. It's really effective and then he's so angry at God that he wants to die. That's the man of God. Like what a hero in the story. And then you have the bad guys. You have the heathen pagan sailors in chapter one on the way to Tarshish, and you have the big bad Ninevites in chapter four. These guys are like the most murderous, oppressive people that the world has ever known. And it turns out that it's these people, these people that have the most sensitive conscience, and they actually turn their hearts towards God. Even the cows repent. And so... We're reading this story. I know this is a whole lot of leading, but I really want you to understand that there's so much depth in the Word of God if you would look at this stuff. 
we're reading the story and it's crazy and it's weird and everything's upside down and no one's acting to their stereotypes. One other final funny bit about the story is that everything in the story on purpose is completely over the top. Everything is huge, everything is massive and the Hebrew word for huge, for huge or great is gadol. Everyone say gadol. And it appears 15 times in two pages. Right, 15 times in two pages, everything is huge when you read the story. The storm is huge, the boat is huge, the fish is huge, the city is huge. It says the city is so huge that it would take three days to walk from one end to the other. And so ancient readers would have read that and gone, oh, that's a good one. Like, that's hilarious. Because no city was even close to that size. 45 miles it would have been. That would be three days walk, 45 miles. It was nowhere close to that, but the city of Nineveh was actually seven miles all the way around. So although it was the the biggest, most established city on the planet at the time, it was nowhere near what they're claiming it to be. But that's the point of the story. Jonah is hugely like happy and then he's hugely sad, like he's a maniac person that needs to see an ancient therapist. He's all over the show. But this is exactly what the author is trying to do. He's telling us the story and he's wrapping us in and we're sitting there going, oh, what a great story. It's crazy. He's doing that and that. Can you believe that guy's doing that? That thing's huge and like, what? Like all of this stuff is happening and then we get to the end of the story and we're like, oh, that's me. We sit there reading, this Jonah guy's so stupid, like running from God, what an idiot. And we realize as we go into the story and the language used that the whole point of the story was to place us inside it as if it were a parable, that he is a real life character, but perhaps God's trying to speak to us about what it would be like if we were in that situation. It's a story full of extremes, but it's like that for a reason. You know, when we create an extreme out of something, it allows us to see more clearly what was perhaps hidden once before. Now, I am in no way whatsoever um, a sound technician like these champions back here. I don't, I don't even claim to be, right? They are honestly the bee's knees. They're the best. But sometimes our band is sound checking before the service, and I'll come in early, and I'll just notice it's very loud. It's very loud in here. So I'll go back and I'll say, and you know, they're always so gracious, they're always so kind. They're smiling, but inside they're like, Frosty, you don't know what you're talking about, right? I'm like, hey, can we just bring the whole thing down? Like the whole thing's a bit loud. And they're like, oh, just relax. It's all good. It's just for sound check. I'm like, what do you mean it's just for sound check? They're like, well, what we do is we lift all the volumes really high so that we have a better ability to hear the imperfections. We lift, lift everything up. We exaggerate everything so we can find the imperfections. We can find the things that aren't quite right. And then we bring it back down to a normal volume for the service. It smooths it out. It's a cleaner sound. It's much better. And that's kind of like what God is doing in this story. He exaggerates everything. Like when you blow up a picture and you can see the finer details, but when it's really small and you know, like when before Instagram had zoom in and you couldn't actually see, but now it does, You can zoom in and you can see the details. God is exaggerating everything to highlight the issues that we need to address, those issues that come up in our life that we would have otherwise not seen. Does that sound good? Okay. How good? Awesome. Here's three truths that I've discovered as I've studied the book of Jonah, and I hope they challenge and encourage you. The first one is this. You can write this in your notes if you've got space there. It's this. Uh, It will cost you either way. Nice, good, encouraging one to start you off. It will cost you either way. I'm gonna bring up uh, some scripture now so that we can follow it along, but it's in your notes anyway. Uh, Jonah chapter one from verse one. It says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, son of Amittai. Jonah means dove or son of faithfulness. So already those reading it are like, son of faithfulness. He's the least faithful guy in the whole story. That's hilarious. They say, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. 
But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. Now the vision says to get away from the Lord's presence. I find this really interesting because Jonah is so determined to get away from the Lord that he hops in a boat and he goes in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. But the Bible says that where the spirit of the Lord is, where the presence of God is, in that place there is freedom. It's in the place that God's spirit dwells, that's where freedom is found. And so you've got Jonah thinking that he's running for freedom when really he's running from freedom. He fled to a place where he thought God would stop confronting him. The verse goes on, it says, he went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. I found it so interesting that Jonah who decides to run from God, what does he do? He just connects up with other people who are also running from God. He's like, oh, oh, you're also going that way? You're also going to the place that's away from the presence of God? You're also running away from the call of God? Well, I'll just find my affirmation in you. I'll just find my contentment in you. And if you're going that way, I'll just get alongside you. He found a boat that was already going there, but he just jumped on with them. The verse continues. He bought a ticket and went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board. There was a ticket. There was a price. He counted the cost. He paid the price. He hopped on board. I found it interesting that he was willing to pay the price to hop on board and run away from God, but he wasn't willing to count the cost of what God was calling him to. Both options, whether you're running away from God or running towards what God is calling you into, will cost you something. They will both cost you something, but only one will lead to true life. And so what boat are you in? In fact, could I say, Whose boat are you in? Are you with people that are leading you away from God? Are you with people that are leading you towards the presence of God? Because he got alongside other people that were leaving God's presence and it ended in calamity for the whole team in the way of a storm. Do you find yourself avoiding the call of God on your life by simply positioning yourself in in a spot where there's less confrontation? Jonah is a prophet of God. Man, come on, this guy knows. He knows that what he's doing is wrong, but he kind of thinks like, you know, if I don't, acknowledge it, if I don't look it in the face, if I position myself around people who don't care, then maybe I don't have to think about it anymore. And I think Jonah always knew he was a prophet of God. This guy's no schmuck. He knows what's going on. I think he always knew that he wasn't running from an omnipresent God. I think he knew the presence of God was gonna be wherever he went, but he was running from the confrontation that would come with it. He fled to a place where others were also focusing on things of this world, so they would be less likely to challenge him on the things of God. He wasn't so much running from God as he was his accountability. In essence, this is it. Jonah hops in a boat to go to a place where he would hear what he wanted to hear. Do you find yourself sometimes running to a place where you hear what you want to hear? Do you go somewhere where people tell you what you want to hear instead of what you need to hear? You know, the ancient city of Tarshish uh, and its location is highly disputed by scholars. Again, I found this fascinating. Some scholars will say, it's definitely here. And other scholars will say, yeah, except it's definitely over here. And yet to other scholars, they're like, no, 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 no. It's a completely different place. I found it so interesting that to different people, Tarshish was a different place. And yet despite that disagreement, what most of them do agree on is that it was a place that was a major supplier of important metals to King Solomon in Israel, right? So silver, but also gold and tin and iron. So it was a place that was focused on the material. It was a place that was focused on wealth. It was a place that was focused on the earthly rather than the heavenly. And maybe this is why Jonah thought that it would lack the presence of God. Isn't it interesting 
that it was a place whose focus was off of God, yet for different people, for different scholars, Tarshish was a different place. Your Tarshish might be different from your neighbor's Tarshish. It's not a specific location, but it's the place where you feel like you can get the furthest away from God. Remember, it's not so much about the details. Where Tarshish actually was doesn't really matter. What matters is that Jonah was trying to get as far away from God as possible. Do you have a Tarshish in your world? Do you have a place that you retreat to, a place that you go because you feel like you can get away from God? If you find yourself being pulled towards people, places, events, environments that won't steer you towards God, then maybe this isn't Jonah, but maybe this is you in the story. Maybe God is one step ahead of you and already knows what you're up to. Maybe this is a sign, whether you realize it or not, that you're running from the call of God on your life. And we read the story and we think, Jonah, you can't run from God. That's ridiculous. But maybe that's the exact point the author is trying to make to us. You know, whether you're on your way to Tarshish or Nineveh, whether you're on your way away from God or towards what God is calling you, both of these options will cost you something. When you run from the presence of God, it's gonna cost you peace and contentment. It's gonna cost you satisfaction in life, healthy relationships, your dignity and your integrity. But when you run to Nineveh, the place that God has called you to, even though it's a godly thing, it will still cost you something. It'll cost you sacrificing personal desires to live a life of example. It means you'll have to lay down your own plan for your life in order to pick up God's plan. Both destinations will cost you something, but only one will bring true life. And the problem with the perceived contentment of Tarshish is just like Jonah, you never actually arrive. You never actually get there. You never actually find the contentment. Your running leads to nothing. You end up getting chucked overboard and God brings you back to the same spot and says, Should we go again? Should we have another go at this? It will cost you either way. Second thing that I noticed was this. God's call is stronger than your disobedience. God's call is stronger than your disobedience. Praise God for that. Because some of us have a lot of it. The disobedience. I remember when I was younger, I used to like watching cricket, right? Then I grew up. Sorry, Glenn, bro, I know you love cricket. But um, I used to love watching cricket, and I remember I was about 10 years old, and I was watching the Cricket World Cup. And I watched, like, the whole thing, and I was pumped. I was getting ready to watch, like, the grand final, whatever you call it, like, on TV that night. Now, I don't know what went down that day. All I know is my brother started it, and I finished it, right? <laughs> my mom wasn't too happy with me at all, and she, you know, she grounded me. She tried, but, you know, she said, you have to go off to your room for the rest of the day. Go to your room, and without thinking about it, in my limited, immature little mind, I just blew it out. You will not. I don't even care, because i got a TV in my room, right? How many people know it wasn't too long before I did not have a TV in my room, right? <laughs> In classic fashion, my mom's carrying the TV out of the room. She says, because of your behavior, you've been banned. You, you can't watch the, the thing. And I'm like, I'm pleading. I'm like, this is horrible. I'm like, mom, it's the Cricket World Cup final. Now, most people don't care about that, especially not dragons. I mean, mums, especially not mums, <laughs> especially not mums. <laughs> so I ended up like crying myself to sleep that night. I still remember it like it was yesterday. God, God, <laughs> I was crying myself to sleep and I didn't watch the final. Now looking back, I feel like I would rather cry myself to sleep than watch a cricket match. But, <laughs> but at the time I was gutted because like my behavior had disqualified me. I was banned because of what I did to my brother. I don't even remember what it was. But you know, stories like this would fill many of our childhoods. 
My story is just better because I had more dragons. <laughs> so often in life, our disobedience we feel disqualifies us from going after what's best. We feel like because we've messed up, we are no longer worthy to expect the best in our life. And while this may be true for some of the people that we have in our world, it's the absolute opposite when it comes to our relationship with God. Because although God is a God of justice, He's also a God that pours out undeserved grace because He loves us too much to leave us down. See, God placed a significant call on Jonah's life to deliver an absolutely game-changing message. And even though he turned his back on God, even though he ran away and tried to stick to his own little vision for his life, God's grace was sufficient. God's grace was enough to meet him right there. You know, Jonah, he's on the boat, he's so ashamed, he's so distant from God that he convinces the sailors to throw him overboard. Now, when we hear the story, we laugh. Well, I mean, I do anyway. I read the story, I thought, this is awesome. Jonah gets swallowed by a fish. I'm like, shame, Jonah. Like, you think you're being an idiot? You think you can run from God? And there you are, like, getting swallowed by a fish. I'm like, what are you, having a whale of a time down there, right? Yeah, like, I'm loving this. I'm like, this is ridiculous. This guy, he deserved it. I'm like, he deserves to be punished. Like, what was he thinking? But as I read the story again, I'm reminded that if it really is this parable nature, is Jonah in the story really just us? Is Jonah in that story really just me? Is that how we view what our, our disobedience is worth? Like when we disobey God, do we feel like we deserve the same level of punishment? And if we do see it that way, if we do see that our disobedience disqualifies us and removes us from God's best, then you probably see the fish as a punishment. But the fish is not a punishment. It's actually an incredible display of God's grace to give Jonah another shot. He's run away, he's given up, and yet God still desires to work with him. God's call on your life is far more powerful than any previous disobedience that you've had. You haven't been disqualified, you haven't been banned, and even though you've been running away, God has never stopped pursuing you. I want you to think about the command that was given to Jonah. Jonah, I want you to go to the city of Nineveh, which by the way, these guys are known for skinning their enemies alive, like, that's hectic, right? And when you get there, preach against them. Like, what? Like, got, got like a plan B, God? Like, any other options? Like, can I phone a friend? Like, this doesn't sound too good. Now, as I read the story, I thought, why would he want Jonah to go and give the message? Like, couldn't God just give this booming voice from heaven? Couldn't he use one of those ram horns thingies that you read about in, like, the book of Revelation? Like, couldn't he just you know, speak from the clouds and give the Ninevites the message. I'm sure that like in an instant they would respond quickly, but he didn't do that. And he didn't do that because God almost never does that. God always desires to work through his people. God's primary vehicle is to work through his people. He doesn't wanna work through perfect people, just available and obedient ones. And Jonah eventually got there. Did you notice that as Jonah was fleeing, God pursued. As Jonah fell down, God lifted up. The whale wasn't a punishment, but it was a strong, miraculous display of God's grace. I can guarantee you that the Ninevites are praising God for the whale. Because if there was no whale, there was no sermon. If there was no sermon, their hearts wouldn't have been turned back to God, avoiding destruction. The author is trying to highlight something here by exaggerating the story. If the man of God can turn his back on God, run away and jump off of a ship to try and get away from the call on his life, and yet there is still grace for him, then he can do the same for us. I'm thinking maybe it was the Ninevites that invented the Jesus fish bumper sticker. I mean, 
it makes sense, right? Someone had to. They were pumped on the fish. God's call is stronger than your disobedience. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, God's grace is sufficient for you. And the story of Jonah is a perfect example of that. The third and final thing uh, that I noticed is this. Uh, God has authored a much bigger story than we have. God has authored a much bigger story than we have. Now, I'm not sure if you've ever used the like, Maps app, you know, like the GPS navigation tool in your phone. When you're driving somewhere a little bit unfamiliar, I, I definitely always use that. I remember when I started using it uh, a few years ago, I had to find myself around Auckland to a whole bunch of different rugby fields, playing rugby, different rugby clubs, different fields that were playing it, and I had to work my way um, around to these different matches. Now, when I first started using it, I was pretty familiar with the Auckland streets, but not completely. And so every now and then, old Siri on the old GPS maps thing would give me a particular route. And I would glance across that, and I'm like, oh, come on. I'm like, I reckon if I fang it down a few side streets, I've got a better way than what it's suggesting, all right? Or I would glance across and think, this app's gotta be crazy if it's telling me to go that way. And so, Siri, I'll take it from here, and I'll go my own way, thank you very much. I found out the hard way, Siri always knew better than me. Like, always knew better than me. Like, maybe the vision that I had was a little bit cloudy and there were a few extra streets that I needed to navigate. Maybe I came across some unexpected traffic that was clearly seen by Siri, hence the alternative route suggested. I learned quickly that my GPS feature could see more of the picture than I could. I had my vision, I had my plan, I had my, my way of doing things, but there was much more to it than what I could see. In Jonah chapter four, this is the, the fourth and the final chapter of the story. We're gonna bring it up on the screen says this, uh, so, so he's given the message to Nineveh and they've turned their hearts towards God. It says, this change of plan greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. He says, didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now. Let's... How does it transition to that? Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted doesn't happen. As in, if what I preached, that they would be destroyed, if that doesn't actually happen, well, I would rather be dead. And the Lord replied, is it right for you even to be angry about this? You know, sometimes what seems like a change of plans is really just a picture of us aligning our hearts with what has always been God's plan. Jonah is upset because he has a plan for his life. He has this prophetic career lined up. He has his enemies over here and he's got this nice little vision for his life over here. And he's so set in that, that he's missing the fact that God wants to use him for this act that would be one of the most incredible displays of grace and mercy that we've ever seen. God was trying to pull him into a picture that was much bigger than what Jonah could see. You know, when I first read the story of Jonah, and maybe you've done the same, I read it and I thought that the reason he ran away was because he was scared. Hands up if you thought that. Thought that a few people? thought He ran away because he was scared. Like, you mean go preach to the people that skin their enemies alive? No, thank you. Like, I thought he was scared, but he wasn't scared. In fact, he wasn't scared at all because the Bible says that he already knew what God was gonna do. He's like, I knew you were gonna just forgive them and be gracious. He already knew what God was gonna do. He wasn't scared. He just didn't see how that fit into his plan for his life. He just didn't wanna partake in that because he had his own idea of how things should pan out. He is so bitter at his enemies that when God forgives them, he gets furious at God. He says, I would rather be dead than live with the reality of my enemies being forgiven. You know, just like Jonah, I think, 
so many people here today, you actually believe that there is a great call on your life to do something great for God, to rise up to the bigger picture that God sees for you. But what's holding you back is that you quite like that little bit of control that you have over your little life, your little plan, your little vision. But Jonah has a conflicting plan. He has a plan for his life that is different from the plan that God has for his life. His response to this challenge for growth is to run away, to get into an environment that is less challenging and less confronting, to find affirmation in people that are already going that way, to preserve his own vision for his life and ignore what God is calling him to. Ben, you guys can join me, that'd be awesome. So I've got a question for you. Is there a part of your life that you're hauling off to Tarshish and God isn't welcome? doesn't have to be your whole life. I know many people sitting here in this room be like, yeah, I'm not running from God, I'm a Christian, it's all good. Yeah, cool, but God only works in the areas of our life that we surrender to Him. And so while you may be saved, praise God, there's so much more that God wants to do in you than just your salvation. He has so much more of a bigger plan for you than just getting you to heaven. Otherwise, He would just take you now. But He doesn't because He's got a plan, He's got a mission, He's got an assignment for you to work on, but God isn't an intrusive God. He will never force His way in. And so is there a part of your life that, that is away from God? It's separate from the presence. It's separate from the confrontation. Like, God, like, oh, like, I'm all good over here, but this part, no, that's on a ship and that's far away where you can't touch it. Is there a part of your life that's on its way to Tarshish and God isn't invited? You know, the Bible says this. It says, if you hold on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give it up for my sake, Jesus says, that's when you will find it. You know, the book wraps up with this funny little scenario where Jonah's still so angry at God that he would actually forgive these guys that he didn't like, and not only that, but he wouldn't have just done it without him. He's like, you had to include me in the picture. And so Jonah's sitting outside of the city. He's crazy, like he's angry, he's upset with God, he's crying out to God, he's sitting out in the beating sun and he's just waiting to see what would happen to the city. And I love the story, it's pretty hilarious to me because after all of this, you get the sense that Jonah still hasn't learned his lesson. And the story goes that God causes this plant to sprout up behind Jonah and, and give him some shade. It's just like so hot. He's so angry he wants to die and this, this shade comes over Jonah's head and the Bible says that he's grateful for the plant. Just love how that's put. Jonah was grateful for the plant. And he feels relief. He feels good. He thinks maybe I could return to this viewpoint that God is good. Maybe things aren't so bad after all. He's got some relief from the sun and then the very next day, the Bible says that God causes a worm to eat the plant so it dies and withers and so then Jonah's back in the sun again and cries out and says, I'm so angry I'd rather die. And I read this, I thought, this is hilarious. I'm like, is God just toying with him? Like, is God just playing with this guy? Like he takes him from like discomfort to comfort and back to agony in the span of one day, for what? And then I remember, maybe it's not about the details, maybe it's about the lesson. Like, what is God trying to say in this? Why would God do this? I know he's a good God, I know he's a compassionate God, he's, he's not doing this just to toy with him. I reckon it was God showing Jonah that he's in control. I think the plant and the worm were a powerful display of God's ability to give and to take away. In a moment, he can give and he can take away. And Job knew this all too well in the Bible as well. God gives and he takes away. I think the worm was a display of God's sovereignty, of his power. 
that God is in control and he could command the things of the natural world to fall in line with his will. It was a raw display of his power showing Jonah that he is far more capable than Jonah could have ever imagined. And so here we have God in this story from beginning to end, four chapters, who uses a whale to display and show us that he is rich in mercy and abounding in love and he uses a worm of all things to display his sovereignty, that he is in control, that he's above the natural world, that he's a supernatural God and that he can give and that he can take away. And as I read this story, I got, you know, from beginning to end, I said, oh, Jonah, Jonah, Jonah. Silly Jonah, why won't you trust God? And then I had no choice but to say, silly Frosty, why won't you trust God? And maybe you could ask yourself the same question. Silly you. Why won't you trust God? Because we can read the story and go, man, Jonah, he, he needs to sort his life out. But when we actually look at the way the story was written, the whole purpose, the whole reason the author presented it the way that he did is so that you would find yourself in it. This is not a random mistake. This is not just some author having a go and using the Bible to like lift his platform, but this is God ordained. It's in there for a reason because I believe God wanted us to find ourselves in the story. Find ourselves in the story. I just wanna invite everyone to stand to their feet. I wanna just pray for you in, in just a moment. And then we're gonna finish by singing out to God. As I prayed in, into the message today, and I believe God's been speaking through the words that I've been sharing, I think there's one main thing here. We often think we've got it all panned out. We know how our life is, and maybe you don't know all the details, but you know what you would like. And just like Jonah, he knew the plan for his life. He had the vision for his life. And it seemed like what God was asking him to do was horrible. It seemed like what God was asking him to do didn't make sense. And I think there was a real fear of trusting that God's plan was better than his plan. So you find it hard to trust God with your whole life. Not just your salvation, but your whole life, every part of it. Do you find it hard to trust God with the way that you're generous, with the way that you forgive those who have hurt you, with the way that you commit your career to Him to do it in an honourable way? Are there parts of your life that you find hard to trust God with? Because the first step in trust is always a vulnerable one. Trust only exists with the, the possibility that trust could be broken. And as you step out in a vulnerable state, hoping, just trusting, just believing that maybe, just maybe God's gonna come through. There are hundreds and hundreds of promises that that is the moment that God meets you in that place and that His plan is better than our plan and He can be trusted. I'm just invite you to close your eyes. I would love to pray for you. Father God, I thank you that you're such an incredible God and the richness of your word isn't one that we can just brisk over and read it for what it is, but there's a depth there, there's a depth that speaks to us. And I pray, God, that what has been shared, that what has been spoken, God, would take root in the soil of our heart. I thank you, God, that every person here has an incredible plan ahead for their life. They're not here to make up numbers. They are not forgotten. They have not been overlooked. But God, you love them and you have grace for them. You have enough grace for them despite their disobedience in the past. And right now, I pray, God, that there would be an uprising of faith. There would be... Uh, a resurgence of belief that they could trust every part of their life into the hands of a gracious and loving God. We pray for that and ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Come on, why don't we just worship God for a few moments?
eyes, out of courtesy for the people that are around you because in a crowd of people, this is an individual question and this question is absolutely 100% for you. So with all heads bowed and all eyes closed, I wanna ask you, do you know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life? Do you know the call that He has on your life? The plan that He has for your life, do you know Him? Because if you don't, I wanna give you an opportunity to give your life to Him today, to surrender to the call today, to surrender to His plans over your own today, to say, you know what, God, I'm tired of running tired of running the other direction when actually I need to run straight into your arms. So do you know him? This is your moment. If your heart is beating, if you know that this message was absolutely for you, that God was speaking directly to you and God is saying, would you stop running? Would you just run straight back to me? Then would you just lift your hand for me? I wanna pray with you. If you've never given your life to God, or if you've been running away and you're ready to come back, just lift your hand for me right now. Amazing, I see that hand on the right. Is there anybody else? I know there's people in this room that that message hits straight to your heart. And I'm gonna wait just a moment for you. I see that hand amazing in the middle. Is there anybody else? I see that hand at the back. I see that hand on the left. I know there's more people out there. I know we've all been in this spot where we've been running from God and God's just saying, would you come back to me now? I can give you another chance. I've got plans for you. I've got a call for you. If you wanna know that call on your life, would you just lift your hand right now? Amazing, amazing. Well, God bless you all. We're gonna pray a prayer with you right now. And for those that lifted their hands, I want you to really, truly mean this. But I'm gonna say it and I want you to repeat after me. Say, dear Jesus, I come to you now as a sinner in need of your grace. I declare that you are the Lord and Savior of my life. I'm no longer running. I'm fully committed. Everything I have is yours. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Can we please celebrate? That is the best decision you could ever make. And there were a number of different hands raised throughout this room. And if one of our team members spotted you, they just wanna have a conversation with you. Put a Bible in your hands if you don't yet have one. But if they didn't see your hand, I encourage you to tell somebody that you made that decision. Don't walk away from accountability. Tell somebody, find one of the pastors at the back. They would love to stand in prayer with you and help you on this journey because this is the best journey of your life. So we celebrate you, we honor you, that is amazing. And I just wanna close the service out here, but before I do, if you want prayer, there's a team up the front, different pastors and leaders that would love to stand in prayer with you. If you wanna sign up for Replenish or sign up to volunteer, you can do so in the foyer just after the service. Next week, we have Murray Burton speaking at our 5 p.m. service and Carolina Gunser in the mornings. But tonight, in just 40 minutes, 41 minutes, we have our sports night in the gym. This is open to everybody, whether you are an athlete or not. Just come hang out with us, meet some new people. It's gonna be great. You can go grab some food and meet us back over in the gym at 7 p.m. But we love you guys. Have an amazing